This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to all of you to the Behavioral Science Author Series, which is brought to you by the Behavior Change for Good Initiative at Wharton. So I'm Katie Milkman, in case you don't know who I am. I am the co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative and a professor here at Wharton. And um, Angela Duckworth is going to be interviewing our guest today. Angela Duckworth is also a professor at Wharton and at the College of Arts and Sciences and Psychology. And uh, she's a co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative. And we are joined today by the amazing Ayelet Fishbach, a professor at the University of Chicago and author of the brilliant new book, Get It Done, which really has my favorite cover. I love that it says, forget, quit, undone with these lines crossed through the four QU and UN. It's just brilliant. Um, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. And the book is every bit as brilliant as the cover and its amazing author. So let me pass the baton to Angela to take it away. Thank you, Katie. And Ayelet, thank you so much for joining. So Ayelet, I want to begin at the beginning, especially about this book. Um, Why did you write this book? I think this is your first book. Why did you write a book and why now? Uh, first, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited. Uh, why did I write a book? Uh, it, it may have been some uh, mid-career crisis. I, I just felt like uh, I, I know all these things and it's just like a really messy room. Like there are all these ideas and they are floating and sometimes they connect well, sometimes not. Sometimes I forget about some. So I decided that I'm going to, to just take make uh, some order in, in this uh, mess and uh, and started to organize my knowledge first to myself. And I uh, thought, oh, maybe I, I'll, I'll write about it. Uh, then I was uh, starting to write. I actually wrote uh, uh, to my daughter who commented on uh, what I wrote and uh, it became a book. There was a pandemic also, but you know, then it became a book. <laughs> there were a lot of books written in the pandemic. I, I have to say, I noticed. Um, this is absolutely one of my favorites. So, so what would you say in, in Get It Done is, you know, the core message of the book? And of course, we'll get into more than that. But what is the core message of Get It Done? Um, so the core message in uh, the social sciences is that you change behavior by changing the, the situation in which the behavior occurs. You change the circumstances. And the, the way we think about it in motivation science is that you can change other people's circumstances. You can also change it for yourself. And, and therefore, I'm trying to figure out what are all the ways in which we can change either the situation or the way we frame it for ourselves so that we are motivating ourselves. And, and many times I take intervention that we use on other people, okay, ways we motivate other people and to see what do we know uh, about using that on yourself. So either by changing the physical circumstances or the way you think about things in a way like nudge thyself, which would not have been as good a cover or a title, but a lot of our audience is very familiar with nudges, defaults, et cetera. But is that in some ways this book, I feel like was written for the person who wants to change their own lives as opposed to the policymaker, you know, trying to make cafeterias healthier, et cetera. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the, the most trivial example is uh, setting an alarm clock. Okay? When you set an alarm clock, you're changing yourself okay? and you're changing your behavior. You make yourself get up in the morning by setting this alarm that will go off and will make a loud noise in, in the room. Uh, there are many other ways in which we can change 
the way we we will behave by changing the the situation uh, uh, when it occurs. I, I um, wanted to uh, commend you. I love the structure of this book, and there are four major sections, and then in each section there are chapters. But um, I wondered if you could give us a bird's eye view of these, you know, four major approaches or areas of motivation strategies. Yeah. So that what happened when I started to uh, make some order in, in the messy room. Uh, I uh, realized that our interventions fall into these four categories. The first one is setting a goal, and there is a lot of research on how to set a goal, how to think about the target, how to make it intrinsic, and so on. The second element or bucket is striving toward this uh, goal, is monitoring progress, is sustaining the motivation as we go from point A to point B. The third area is managing multiple goals. And we never just want one thing. So how do you manage these multiple things? When do we look for compromise? When do we look to prioritize? And then the fourth area is social support. Okay, What is the role of others, both in helping us pursuing the goal, when it's a goal that we have several people pursuing together, and also in spotting our individual goals just by being there and, and observing us or uh, being our role models. So I want to pick up on something that you said at the, you know, I guess it would follow you the first area, the first area of goal strategy. So you said intrinsic, you know, you alluded to intrinsic motivation. And um, some of my favorite work of yours as a researcher is quite provocative because I, I think you offer a different perspective on what intrinsic motivation really is and how it's different from extrinsic motivation. So if you wouldn't mind speaking to that, and of course, for those who are less familiar, like what is the the classic definition of intrinsic motivation? And then what's the Ayala Fischbach view on intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation? Oh, gosh, the, the classic definition depends on that and who you are. I think that in psychology, we agree that intrinsic motivation is doing things for the the sake of doing it. And I'm saying in psychology because in economics, often this term is is used to doing something uh, that you're not being paid for. Okay, And I want to put that aside. It's not about not being uh, paid. Uh, It's about doing something for the sake of doing it, which means that it feels right. It feels good. uh, It feels... In the moment, okay, it feels like the thing that you want to do, as opposed to doing it in order to achieve something else. And there is a lot of work that looks at the contents that tend to be intrinsically uh, motivating. Uh, my work uh, doesn't say that it's wrong to look at the content, but I'm more interested in the structure and what makes people feel that this is the right thing to do as they, they are doing it. And the way I think about it, intrinsic motivation happens when you achieve your goal while you're pursuing the activity, when the, the goal and the, and the means and the activity are fused together. So say more about that, because that idea of goal fusion, right? So let me see if I'm capturing what you're saying. You're saying when something is intrinsically motivating, sometimes psychologists say like, oh, things that are interesting, that's what's intrinsically motivating, things that are pleasant or enjoyable. I think you're giving a more structural account. You're like, when it's not an instrumental, like I'm washing the dishes so that my house isn't a mess, like that's instrumental, that's not intrinsic. I think you're saying that structurally, an intrinsic thing would be like, while I'm washing the dishes, if it is, if, if I feel like I'm at the same time 
accomplishing a clean house. So I'm washing the dishes, clean house, but they're fused. Is that because it's, I think, a really profound concept, but it's hard. So if you could, you know, double click on this. Yes, I I agree. Uh, It is hard because uh, we don't say that getting rewards necessarily interferes with intrinsic motivation, that the act of completing the goal is always intrinsically motivating. Uh, The act of of achieving something that you are working on. And often by giving people rewards, we increase their intrinsic motivation because they they feel that they are getting the reward as they are doing it. It makes them excited. It makes them engaged. And so we can take any goal or a mini goal, which is a reward. And when we, we put it on the activity itself, when you feel you achieve it as you're pursuing the activity. So give me a personal yeah. example of goal yes. fusion, like in I yell at Fishbox Life. Oh, uh, I'm highly uh, uh, intrinsically uh, motivated, meaning I find it hard to do anything that is not intrinsically uh, uh, motivating. Uh, one example is that I never have enough time in the day. Like when I leave work, uh, uh, it's always like I wish I had uh, a few more minutes to finish what I was working on, which is a sign of uh, intrinsic motivation, which is also one of the, the measures of intrinsic motivation, how much you you want to engage in the activity when you're no longer required to. But in my experiments, uh, we find that when we give people immediate rewards, they enjoy what they're doing more. They're more excited about uh, uh, doing it. When we direct their attention to what they get from pursuing the task as opposed to later on, okay, what they get immediately, they are more intrinsically motivating. So you know, in one experiment, we had people either focus on the immediate pleasure or interest that they get from uh, watching uh, some uh, TV show uh, versus the, the later benefits, okay, what they will later know that will be useful uh, for them in their lives. And it was a, a clip about the, uh, the news. It was about the situation in Tibet back at the time. Uh, people that were focusing on their immediate pleasure, okay, on how much they feel like they they are gaining knowledge at that time were more uh, intrinsically uh, motivating, motivated, sorry. It's really the feeling that what you're doing is the, the right thing to do as you are doing it. As you're doing it, not in separate else. time. Yes, yes. Let me give you another example. Like the, uh, the old psychology often uh, uh, use curiosity as the, the ultimate uh, intrinsically uh, motivating uh, activity. And I, I think that it was basically a historical mistake. Uh, we started the, the research on intrinsic motivation, finding that uh, animals will explore their environment even when there are no uh, rewards uh, to explore. And so uh, researchers have assumed that uh, uh, these uh, rats uh, were intrinsically uh, motivated to explore. And we then became to believe as a field that intrinsic motivation is about curiosity, uh, well, it could, but it doesn't need to be. If uh, you know, we give this example in one of our papers, if you are going on a, a crowded uh, flight uh, uh, to get to a safari trip, uh, while you're flying, you're not very intrinsically uh, motivated. It actually feels kind of uh, bad. Uh, the moment you satisfy your curiosity, you solve a riddle or you you see those giraffes on the, the safari. Uh, this is when you feel intrinsically motivated. You are getting you, your reward or you're achieving your goal 
as you're pursuing the activity. I know we have another favorite example, which is Tom Brady, which feels like a timely example, given where we are in the NFL playoffs, I guess, where he was sprinting back and forth in a parking lot before a charity golf tournament. And one of, I think it was like Shaquille O'Neal or somebody said like, Tom, what are you doing sprinting back and forth in the parking lot before we're supposed to go in and play golf? And he said, I'm winning the Super Bowl. So like while I'm doing it, I am immediately like I am achieving the goal. Anyway, it's mind blowing. I think Goal Fusion, Google, I yell at Fishbach and Goal Fusion if you want to learn more. Um, I want to uh, pivot just a little bit. You know, what is the middle problem? Oh, we jumped to the middle problem. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, right that- to the middle problem. <laughs> Yeah, from the beginning to the middle. Uh, So for uh, many goals that have a a clear beginning and end, we see the people are highly motivated when they just start on something. They are excited about doing it. Every step at the beginning feels like a huge step. You are moving from zero to one, which is an enormous progress. Uh, Toward the end, if there is a clear end, we see again this excitement. Okay, uh, maybe there is a graduation party. Uh, uh, maybe there is some celebration that I'm just going to, to win this uh, award that I was working for for such a long time. Okay? College diploma, for example. Uh, in the middle is when we see motivation uh, kind of uh, on the decline. And, and we see that both people are working less hard and also they are and lowering their performance standards. So there is less effort and also uh, more uh, um, just cutting corners. In now one of the studies that we ran on the middle problem, we had people actually cut corners. So they, they had five shapes to cut. They were on a piece of paper. We gave them a pair of scissors and they were cutting the first shape very well, the last shape very well. In the middle, they were literally cutting Literally corners. cutting corners. Yeah. What's the antidote to the middle problem, right? So if we have a lot of motivation at the beginning for different reasons, then we have a lot of motivation at the end, but still there's this like sagging of motivation in the middle. What's the antidote? There are a few things that we can keep middles short. How do you, how do, you do that? A weekly exercise goal instead of a monthly exercise goal. We can have a monthly saving goal instead of an annual saving goal. We can think about our goals for this semester as opposed to our goals for the entire time that we will pursue an academic degree. If you have like these sub goals, because these short goals, usually I know that you know after this week you would still want to exercise. You don't only want to exercise this week, but because you think about it in terms of three exercises in a week, okay, I, I know that you'll have a short meal. Okay, and the next week you might want to do another thing. Okay, another set of workouts. I don't know if you heard of Katie Milkman. She has the fresh start effect. That's uh, I have heard of the fresh start effect and. I have recently heard of Katie Milkman. Yeah. Yeah, right. So that's another way to find the middle uh, problem. You just uh, find ways to announce beginnings uh, in a way that uh, re-energize you to to think about it as a fresh start. And uh, uh, when we think about people relaxing their performance standards, uh, reminders of identity, reminders that your your identity is tied to what you do uh, could help. And possibly, I think Goal Fusion could help, right, with these 
you know, large ambitious goals? And would goal fusion also help with the with the middle problem, or do you think those are just totally different? I, I think it will. So I, I think goal fusion will help you with whatever you do because you you feel like you want to do it. You feel this immediate rewards from from doing as 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 humans we really we want to feel right when we do the thing it's very hard for us to do something today in order to benefit uh, uh, in in some uh, future saying that the concern often with middles is that they feel less like less exciting and and so there is less of this immediate reward of feeling that i'm i'm achieving something like it, it feels good is there any downside to sub goals? Any any like hidden dark underbelly of sub goals? Because the way you've described it as uh, helping to mitigate the middle problem and also creates more fresh starts, right? So so uh, relatedly, but any downsides to dividing up big goals into smaller goals? Probably the same uh, uh, problem that we often see with setting goals or in particular setting targets, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, that they might not be the right sub goals or the, the right targets for the individual. If they if the sub goal is too easy, then people quit too soon. If it is uh, too hard, then uh, people uh, give up. And also when we set sub goals, we sometimes don't set it on the appropriate metric. Okay, We might count the number of minutes we exercise, but not actually what we do. Or maybe a more intuitive example is the number of minutes that we study instead of the, the quality of work that we produce while we, while we are studying. And so every time we set these uh, measurements, there is the, the risk that we might be measuring ourselves on, on the wrong metric. We might be using the, the wrong target. Um, let me ask you, I think, a related question that has perplexed me for a long time, which is, is a plan different from a goal? I think it is, but I'd love to hear from you how plans and goals are different. And is a plan just a sub-goal, right? So, you know, so many leaders and, you know, researchers actually talk about goals on one hand and plans on the other. Can you solve this uh, riddle for me? <laughs> I'm not sure I can solve this riddle for you, Angela, but I can try. Okay, can talk and, and about it. Can, yeah, yeah, then you can explain to me why I why I haven't. Uh, <laughs> we we often think about the goal as the end state. Like this is what I I want to achieve. Uh, this is uh, uh, where I want to be. And part of setting a goal, part of an efficient uh, goal setting, is setting a goal that. Uh, you can connect to a plan that you can think about what is the course of action that will lead to at uh, this goal. Like that goal. So the plan become... is the course of action that leads to the desired future state. The goal is the desired future state. The plan is the I... course of action to lead there. Is that right? I believe so, but then you ask it, where plan exactly, and you know, so we have the goal, and then we have the the, the sub goal, and then we have the means, and and where exactly is uh, uh, the plan, and and the plan, if you can envision this hierarchy where you start with like the most abstract goals, like I, I want to be healthy, and then I have like the the sub goal that uh, I, I want to uh, work out, and uh, you know the the means, like I'm signing up for the the gym, and and so on. You no, know, below that, I don't know. I, I buy gym shoes. You can think about the plan as the, the entire hierarchy that leads to the goal. Or at least this is how I think about a plan. And this is how 
though I, I talk about it when I say that it's really important to set goals that are not so abstract so that you cannot come up with a plan. So then the plan is this, like you have like a, a structural answer, which is like the goal is where you're going. And then the plan is like whatever it is underneath that gets you there, but it's defined in a way in its relationship to how you've, you know, if you drew this all out, like the goal that's on top. Is that right? This is how I think about it. Yes. I think that's the way I'm going to think about it um, after this. Um, okay, I only have a couple questions before we go to questions from the audience. I, I love your research on negative feedback, um, negative feedback and failure. And this is, of course, with Lauren Esquiswinkler, a researcher we both think is fantastic um, and is now at Kellogg. Why is it so hard to learn from negative feedback? It is so, so hard uh, and it is uh, always, uh, when Lauren and I went our studies, we were always amazed by how hard it was for people to learn from negative feedback. We were asking them binary questions, like what is this thing that you don't know? Okay, Is it uh, an animal or an object? And if we gave them positive feedback, they remember the correct answer five minutes later. If we gave them negative feedback, so whatever you guessed, you thought it was an animal, and we said, no, it's not an animal, you were wrong. And five minutes later, people don't know that this is an object. Where logically you gave them the exact same amount of information. Exactly. They did not do the, the simple uh, learning by elimination. If uh, this is not the right answer, then the only other answer uh, could be uh, right. And uh, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what are the, the barriers. Uh, they are mainly emotional and cognitive. Emotional barriers, meaning it hurts. I rather not go there. I rather think that this was uh, just a bad experience that I can put behind me and not learn from it. Uh, it's hard to also cognitively learn from failure because it involves learning by elimination. That is understanding that I learned something by learning what not to do, okay, or by learning what is the, uh, the wrong answer. And we often find that uh, people uh, just don't bother, take this uh, extra step, or uh, uh, even fail to see that there was uh, uh, an information there. Uh, you know, a, a task that uh, that Lauren uh, developed, which I really like, uh, had uh, people uh, learn about three prizes, okay, three boxes. Okay, we call the mystery boxes. One had a small reward, the other one had a large reward, and then there was a third box that had a loss. Okay, meaning if you open that box, you will actually have to pay me. And we tell people that before they choose their box, we are willing to tell them either where the loss is or where the small reward is. Okay, now there is a correct answer. You should know where the loss is so that you have an equal chance to get the large or the small reward. But about a third of the people in our experiments were choosing to look at the small reward, okay, or tell another person where the small reward is, basically not realizing that there was information in, uh, uh, in, the, in the loss. Uh, and this is just uh, not bothering to think through the Right, the avoidance, yeah. right, the avoidance uh, maybe of the pain and also maybe that extra cognitive step. I mean, thinking about real world situations, right? Two mechanisms by which negative feedback can be very hard but you also emphasize in your writing and speaking, very important uh, to learn from. Okay, I have more questions, but so does everybody else. So I'm gonna go to um, this first question from Eamon Colvin. Regarding the middle problem, 
how do you balance using strategies to increase motivation slash persistence versus quitting slash pivoting? Uh, so we don't want people to quit, right? We want them to uh, persist. And uh, uh, and I am not sure I uh, totally understand that question. Yeah, I'm looking at it too and I'm like, I wonder what Eamon... Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Eamon, you can also write the Q&A, a clarification um, of that question. Um, and uh, if I misread it, then also you can let me know. Um, how about we do this? We'll come back to Eamon. Um, there are some questions about intrinsic motivation. Uh, Carissa writes, can rewards help build intrinsic motivation? For example, if a student gets $5 from her parents for each A on the report card, will that help build intrinsic motivation for learning? Yes. Uh, we want to increase intrinsic motivation. <laughs> what a shockingly motivation. clear and also <laughs> not very popular answer. You're, you're saying, yes, we should pay our, I should have paid my kids for their report cards. It's too late now, but... Uh, well, I, I, unless, uh, you know, the, the kids might be already uh, intrinsically uh, motivated. And there might be other ways to make them intrinsically uh, motivated. There might be better ways. Let's make it a game. But, you know, I will mention a study that we are, uh, Kaylin Woolley and I went with a, uh, a school in uh, Florida where we uh, came to uh, a math class and we just brought um, healthy snacks and uh, colorful pencils and music. Uh, the teachers weren't too excited about the music in, in, in the room. And the kids were more motivated to study. They uh, attempted more uh, math problems. They were more intrinsically uh, motivated. So clearly external rewards, but they were immediate and they made their whole experience of studying more fun and more engaging and it, it worked. So uh, yes, uh, add rewards to activities, but make them immediate so that people get them as they work on the activity. And then, you know, we know that there is a risk in too many incentives, too many rewards. So if the child is already excited by what they are doing, certainly don't come Leave them alone. Them. Yeah. I We'll move on to another question about intrinsic motivation. I'm going to go back and clarify Eamon's question, but I'll just say if you're rewarding, and I'll ask you, if I give my daughter $5 when she turns in her report card to me, but then it's not an immediate reward, right? Because all the work she did for two and a half months is then later getting rewarded by $5. I don't know if that would revise your advice, but that to me feels like a delayed reward for what she did for two and a half months. Yeah, so delayed rewards uh, are not great for increasing increasing uh, intrinsic motivation. Uh, but you know, you're raising the, the question of like paying for work, and we know that for adults, uh, uh, getting paid for your work doesn't undermine our intrinsic motivation. Right? <laughs> We're not forfeiting our salaries, for example, just so that we could be more productive. Exactly. Uh, so the, the only reason that that might that the rewards might decrease intrinsic motivation for kids is that kids might not really know why they do whatever they do. Uh, they are still learning and we can confuse them. Okay, When we told kids in an experiment that certain foods will make them uh, strong and, and smart, uh, they didn't want to eat these foods. Okay, We, we just confused them about the, the purpose of eating these crackers. Okay, I thought I'm eating crackers because I like them. Turn out that I need to eat them only if I want to be able to count to 100. And, and, and the kids were just uh, concluding that these crackers are probably not good. 
But, you know, um, yeah. we'll, we'll move on. But I'll just say, like, I yell at that response, but also this is one reason I loved your book, because there is nuance in your book and there's clarity. So, so, um, so I, I agree. And I think there's a simplistic view of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation that you magically, marvelously transcend. Um, so here's one other question um, from Sari, and then we'll go back to Eamon's because I think I understand his question a little better from these notes that have been added. Sari asks about intrinsic motivation. How can parents and teachers do a better job using the concept of developing intrinsic motivation? I mean, is there anything else that you would say in principle, right, that, uh, you know, not to be afraid of you know, extrinsic rewards at at, you know, at all, it, like it's not like they're categorically bad. You know, meter was anything else. You know, as a as a mother yourself, or to me, I've got an eighteen and twenty year old. Anything else as advice on on motivation and intrinsic motivation? Yes. So we want to make studying rewarding in itself. We want to make the child excited about studying, and we can add rewards, right? We can make studying into more of a party. Okay, they're just more outside of the, the materials itself, things that get attached to it that feel good. We can also direct the, the child to find what they enjoy about studying, what's the, their favorite way of doing it, what might be their favorite uh, topic. And we also do it for ourselves, right? We try to find the, the best way, the most immediately rewarding way to do whatever uh, we do. Uh, and uh, uh, we can also uh, focus on in the task that we are doing about what uh, what we like about it. So, you know, we, we intuitively ask our uh, kids, what, what do you like about this book? Okay. Uh, also, what, what do you like about this uh, math uh, unit? Okay. What was interesting uh, about it? And, and you might get the answer that, uh, oh, I like that. That was awful. Like, I didn't like it at all. But Nothing. Oh, right, like not like you know, it's like asking a child, "What do you like in school?" And they tell you research, and they say, "Okay, but you know, there were a few other things outside of research. What did you like?" Okay, just getting kids and getting ourselves to think about what what did we like, what did we find rewarding. But I do, I do want. I I know I might be taking a lot of time with this answer, but I, I also want to say that. It is often important to understand that, that liking and feeling intrinsically motivated is not going to be immediate, right? And, and well, I should not explain that to you, Angela, because you know about grit, a thing or two, but it often takes some time to discover your passion, to discover that this is the thing that you will enjoy doing. And we can certainly encourage our kids to understand that it might be hard before it's fun. And so we, we do need to give things a chance. We do need to, to struggle in order to, to find our passion. Okay, that is a great transition, it turns out, to I think what Eamon was um, really asking about, which is, you talked about the middle problem. I think what Eamon is asking, how do you know when you know your motivation is flagging and you notice it? You're like, wow, I don't really feel as excited about this work as I used to. How do you know, know whether you should do a, like I should use some of the I yell at fish box strategies, sub goals, fresh starts. I, I you know, I, I should do something to increase my motivation and grit it out. Or B, I think my body and my mind are telling me to quit. So, so how do you know when to grit and when to quit? And I think that is the spirit uh, of Eamon's question. You know, clearly there there are upsides to quitting. There are costs to quitting. So, um, let me ask you that question. I yell at. 
So this is hard. Okay? And we know that sometimes people take on the, the wrong goals. Okay? There are uh, extreme diets. Okay? There are extreme exercises. There are uh, things that people uh, take on and, uh, and, and they really shouldn't or they should uh, and know where to quit. When we look at uh, some of the, the research that I got involved in with uh, aging, at a certain age, we need to give up on certain things, in particular in the context of pursuing multiple goals, we need to reprioritize and say, well, I, I, I can't have everything that I had so far. I need to give up uh, on some. Uh, there is no magic uh, answer to how, how to know uh, when to quit. It often requires do some analysis of, of your life and what you can fit in there, what you uh, cannot. And you know, going back to my previous answer, it's important to realize that for many of the things that we do, we will not know whether it's the right thing for a while. We recently did a study with the Second City Improvisation Club here in Chicago. And you know, we found that when we uh, tell uh, new students that their goal is to feel uncomfortable in the class, they're doing better, they're more motivated. Now, what did we do by asking you to feel uncomfortable? Well, basically, now when you feel uncomfortable in your first class, it's not a very comfortable feeling to do improvisation for someone who's never done it before. You feel that this is the appropriate response, okay? It feels right. This is how I should feel in my first class. And I should do it a few times. And if I always feel discomfort, then maybe it's not the right thing. But there's also a good chance that after a few times, that will feel more natural. I will be more excited there will be more of the, the positive feeling from doing improvisation in this case. Uh, that's a very recent paper, I think. And I, I love it, especially the improv study. Um, okay, so uh, Ayanav Hart asks um, and first says, thank you, Ayelet, for a fascinating discussion. Could you, Ayelet, perhaps talk about differences uh, between goals and sub-goals, how they relate to goal fusion? So I take it that this might just be, you know, more appetite for maybe practical advice about how somebody can think, okay, I have these goals, okay, I have these sub goals or plans, you know, how do I get more of this Tom Brady like goal fusion? Um, is there a like cognitive trick to all this or any other uh, way that somebody who feels like their goals are not very fused can get them to be more fused? I think that it makes more sense to think about how to increase intrinsic motivation than how to increase fusion per se. And the reason is that we often feel, experience this fusion where really the, the sub-goal and the goal have uh, uh, this very strong connection. There is no other sub-goal that leads to that. Yeah, point. actually, if you could tell us, I think you have four ways in which, you know, things like these four channels or something by, by which, you know, the, the goal and the and the sub goal or can, can become closer together. And, and you're about to talk about it, but I'd love for you to, to talk about all of them, all four. Yeah, that, that's that's a lot, uh, Angela. <laughs> it's like a final say, exam. I'm like, I think I could feel that like we're, we're working on this together, right? So I was like, yeah. I think I could do it. But you... I think that Angela just asked me to uh, uh, give an, an answer that would usually take one hour in two minutes. <laughs> this will be our last question, probably. <laughs> go, go ahead, try it. Uh, so you uh, uh, you will have greater fusion uh, when every time you pursue the, the activity or the sub goal, you experience achieving the goal, Okay, when they just tend to uh, co-occur. 
uh, you will have a, a greater uh, experience of fusion uh, when there is no other goal that is served by the activity. So, so there's when, no other way. So non-substitutability, right? Like I have to do this yeah. in order so that the, I can't do, you know, A, B, or C. Like it just has to be this. This is the, the only way that I can achieve this goal. Yes, which is where I'm saying that fusion should not be an end in itself because, you know, the person that can only feel like they, they work out when they run has really strong fusion between running and, and walking out. Okay? Like feeling, feeling fit for them means running. There's a cost for this, right? Like if they cannot run, it's, it's really hard for them to find the, the substitute. Uh, if uh, the, mm. the circumstances change, they, they are not flexible. Uh, so it it's, might not be good, but when they run, they feel great because this is for them the, the experience of being fit. Okay, The, the goal is highly uh, fused. Uh, so this is like the a goal that, that was is two. by one uh, activity. Uh, there is uh, also, uh, in, uh, um, you know, if you only have uh, one goal connected to this activity, so if uh, in this example, if you only run in order to uh, feel uh, fit, uh, which, uh, you know, a- again, the downside for this, because if you also run in order to uh, uh, run with me and we can, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, go sit while we, we do that, uh, th- that's an added benefit. But for in, in your mind, like running is, is just for fit, that will create greater uh, fusion. Uh, if the uh, reward is uh, uh, delivered earlier, uh, if the goal is delivered earlier, I'm going back and forth between reward and goal. And I don't want to confuse them, but we often think about rewards as mini goal, because it's more immediate uh, goal. And the sooner it, it gets, uh, the more intrinsically motivated you, you feel. And then tell me if I have this wrong. I think the last thing I was thinking of similarity, like the more the goal and the action are similar, right? Like, as opposed to like, oh, I have to fill out this paperwork so that I can get tenure and it just feels different, like paperwork being an academic, but the more similar it is in your mind, um, the easier it is for there to be goal fusion, which as you've pointed out, isn't always the best thing, but if you're looking for goal fusion, is that right? Similarity? Yeah. So Angela gave you uh, the, the fourth, uh, <laughs> the example that I used uh, in my book is about uh, learning a language in order to relax. It just doesn't feel right. Okay. There's no good fit. <laughs> between Not for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like if, if this is your, you know, what you do to relax, you, you might find it harder to be intrinsically uh, motivated or to have this experience of fusion. Yeah. I just want to say that while we were having the conversation, I felt like I was becoming a better behavioral scientist. So I had a very fused experience. Um, ter- terrific conversation, uh, terrific book. Um, I'll let Katie take the mic from here. Uh, every conversation with Ayolette is a treat, and I always feel that way. And it was really fun to be a fly on the wall for this one. And I should say, she, the conversation I love with Ayolette will be featured in my newsletter coming out next Tuesday. Uh, so I'm excited about that. This was wonderful. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Katie. I will not say anything else. (laughs) So much fun. So many great books that are written by behavioral scientists. We hope you love reading them and, and hearing us interview these folks. Thank you all. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.